So it was about 2005, 2006. I'm like 15, 16 years old, and I live in a small town. I go to a small church with a lot of really small boxes for your personality to fit in, which I always had a lot of trouble doing. And my parents kind of encouraged a little bit of uh, independent thinking uh, through many different ways that I don't have to get into right now. But one of which was me being a little allowed to be a little creative with my style. And so I had the brilliant idea one day to let my sister color my hair jet black, change things up a little bit. And at the same day, I also asked my best friend to try out on me uh, his new invention of this version of a mohawk. And it was so cool. It's kind of like a mohawk 2.0, you know, and it's really hard to describe, and I don't think a haircut has ever been as glorious since or before. I, I do have a picture. We'll see that later in life sometime. Um, there's, so there's this memory that I have in that same time with that same style of me sitting in my dad's church in the back row. Service is over, and uh, my dad came back to sit next to me as people were leaving and just sort of hang out. And I'll never forget, this woman walked up to us and looked at me, looked at my dad, and she said, Pastor Brian, if my son ever looked like that, I would wait till he was asleep and shave his head bald. (laughs) And I didn't really know how to respond to it. Everybody, I guess, is entitled for their story. But my dad looked at her, and as she walked away, put his arm around me and said, well, I guess it's a good thing that this one's mine. Fast forward a few years, and I am now living in Grand Rapids and trying to get friends. And some friends wanted to switch my name around a little bit. We had a little game playing where we'd call me Dan Mike, and... uh, That joke has come back to haunt me several thousand times, and it weaseled its way into my voicemail. Uh, Hey, this is Dan Mike, leave a message. And I got a call from my dad I couldn't receive, and I open up the voicemail, and it says, Hello, son. I have forgotten why I called you, (laughs) because of uh, maybe this is now Mike's phone also. Or that you're sharing with someone named Mike. Of course, this isn't the name that I've given you. Daniel, the mighty prophet. And, um, and then he continues to say, but I'll take the opportunity now to share with you uh, the reality that you could change your name if you want to. You could change anything about yourself as you want to, but you'll always be my son. You'll always be a Thompson. And it seems like that, these stories that stick up in my mind about how like my dad had a priority to show me that identity matters before action. Really, identity matters before outward appearance. It's kind of like I believe that that our, our actions proceed from our identity and they come from a place of like you give what you, what you got, you know? We're going to see a story in the Bible today of a father who looks down at his son and says, before you've done anything, before you've made any significant actions, I really want you to know your identity. And he begins to speak this identity over his son. And then we start to open up this genealogy that we find and see that there's this huge story of redemption that happens. And God has chosen to... to Show his redemption in 
familial language and showed to, to, to show himself through a story of a family. The full weight of the redemption of his story comes through this story of this family of Hebrews. And so I just want to say right now, if there's a fight that I want to fight, it's for the family and the family of God. And it seems to me like there are just a lot of families in this country that are giving up. And I wonder what would happen if we were to really receive the truth of being adopted into this greater family. And, and, and look at this family of God through the brokenness and the lenses that we all have of our own families. But really to receive that we have been adopted into a family. Like what if we were to take ourselves as family really seriously. And to, what if we were to say we don't give up on family uh, we, we die for our family. And, and what if we were to say, this family doesn't do certain things and this family does certain things and we see this long-rooted history of a family that isn't shallow, that goes back thousands of years to see people who have made decisions in this family, courageous decisions based on who God is, based on who their father is. We do this by how we treat each other. We do this through the inspiration of what the scriptures tells us and, and how they tell us that through his sufferings, he has brought many sons to glory. And receiving that, not just he brought many people, many strangers, many of these things to glory, he's brought sons. And we do this by receiving the Holy Spirit in our hearts that cries out with our spirit, Abba, Father. Confirming our place as sons at the table of God, confirming that we are God's children. All of creation is groaning for this to be revealed because it's life-changing. Don't give up on the family. One of the ways that we can do this and be encouraged by this is looking at the champion of our family, the true linchpin that brings us all together and reconciles us back to God, his son, Jesus. So turn to Luke chapter 3. And please, once you get there, please stand with me as we read uh, from this story. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. As he was praying... The heavens were open. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You're my son, whom I love, whom I delight. Now Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat. who was the son of Lavi, the son of Malchi, of Hyanai, of Joseph, of Matithiahu, of Amos, of Nahum, of Elsie, of Nagai. Who's the son of Maath, who also was the son of Matthias, the son of Shimeon, the son of Yosek, the son of Hyoda, the son of Yochanan, the son of Risha. Who was the son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, who was the son of Malki, son of Adai, the son of Kosan, of El Madam, of Er, of Yeshua, of Eliezer, of Yorim, of Mathat, who's the son of Levi, the son of Shimeon, the son of Yehuda, 
the son of Yosef and Yonam and Eliakim, who is the son of Mele and of Manah and of Mattatha and of Nathan, who is the son of David, who was the son of Jesse, who was the son of Obed, who was the son of Boaz and of Salmon, of Nashon and Abinadav, of Ram, of Hezron, of Peretz, who was the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, as you all know, was the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, of Serug, and of Ru, and of Peleg, who was the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, who was the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, who was the son of Enoch, who was the son of Jared, who was the son of Mahalael, the son of Kenan, who was the son of Enosh, who was of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Please pray with me for a moment. Father, we ask you to make the book come alive to us and to pierce our hearts and help us discern between thoughts and tensions and uh, just be a lamp, let it be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. I know you've been doing this and speaking to people through your word for thousands of years, and so here we are. Amen. You can have a seat or a stand. I will be standing. All right, so if you haven't been um, coming to worship with us on Sunday mornings recently, we've been studying something called the, the Gospel of Luke. And so as we catch up to speed, since we're dealing with a story this morning, a beautiful long story of a family, I thought that um, it might be helpful to share the context of this story, kind of like I'm telling a story. <laughs> and so... Who wrote this letter? He's a guy named Luke. He was from a city called Antioch. He was one of the first generation of people who believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He started following around this guy called Saul, who we call Paul, who was a really great missionary. And at some point, the beloved physician, Luke, decided to start doing a reconstruction of the life of Jesus in a really detailed way so that he could send to his pal Theophilus, who subsequently sent it to us. Long story short. How did he do that? I can't see another way other than by going around and and having a lot of interviews. (laughs) He wasn't there, like some of the other writers were. And so it would have taken a lot of conversation and a lot of people's opinions and uh, compiling them together and asking what really happened. So if I were him, one of the first places that I would go is to the house of Mary, his mother. So imagine with me that Luke goes to the northern part of Israel, to Nazareth, and he goes to this small house, his four-bedroom house, and he knocks on the door, and it's open, and he says, Hello, my name is Luke. I'm looking for Miriam. An older woman sitting at the table over there pipes up and says, Miriam's my mom. I'm Mary. Come on in. He says, I'm looking to reconstruct. I'm, I'm looking to write the story of Jesus, and I was wondering if you could share some of that with me. And so she says, What do you want to know? And he says, Everything. <laughs> Tell me, please, what was it like? What was he like? What's his story? And I wonder what the first thing that comes to mind for her was. Did she say, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the amount of patience that I had to have. I mean, 
At first, it was like fireworks every second. It was like all these different things happened. I mean, I remember it like yesterday. I was sitting right here in this same room, folding my laundry, and I take a breath and look up, and there is a giant angel in front of me, a warrior of God. I'm, and I don't know what to say, but he starts telling me that I'm going to get pregnant without getting pregnant, and I'm going to be the mother of this God kid, and... So I tell Joseph, who also gets it confirmed in a dream, and then I go to tell my cousin, who I'm a little nervous to tell because she's been having trouble having kids. But when I get there, she's had three months of pregnancy already. And so I'm singing songs. She's singing songs. Her husband's not saying anything because he doesn't have a voice. We've got shepherds coming and angels singing and a few months go by after he's born and we have the, I've never met someone famous in my life, but then these princes who say the stars are moving have come and they have brought a ton of spices and things and money that we kept for really, we're still using, I've got the box that they gave us over here and And then there was just nothing. Ten years goes by. We have this story when he was 12. We don't even know what to do with it. I mean, it was like he said something about the temple being his father's house and okay. And we just went home and I, I just, I didn't know what to do with it. He turned 15 and. 17 and nothing and Joseph passes away and unexpectedly and Jesus never really got that fatherly affirmation from him and he just continued to work and help the family and he's 25 years old and there's nothing. 25 years, 26 years, 27 years and there's nothing happening. He's just a normal person and I'm starting to wonder, is this real? Was that, was that a false memory? Was I still had some of this stuff. And it was like when he was 29 years old. And then this, you know, brother of Jesus, Simon, is across the room. He pipes up and says, no, mom, I think it was when he just turned 30 that it happened. And Luke's like, what happened? Everything changed. You see, we heard that our cousin John was doing some ministry, which kind of surprised us all because he wasn't the most socially acceptable person. (laughs) He was a Nazarite, so he wasn't coming to all the things that we were normally coming to. He didn't have a high priority on personal hygiene. And to be honest, he was eating things that make me sick. He's always putting bugs in his mouth and eating honey and stuff that he could find and We never really connected. But then it was like this moment where all of a sudden he was sharing something that just wasn't from him. It was like the word of God started coming out of him. And people started to feel this conviction and going down. And he was baptizing people down in the valley. And so mom sent Jesus to take us all down there, see if we could help or see what was going on. And we go down. And Jesus was always the first of us to try things. He was always excited to experience things. And so he was the first person in the water. 
And I don't really know what John said because I was too far away. It looked like there was a little bit of confusion between who was going to be doing what and they were talking to each other. But um, before you know it, John has his hands on Jesus' head. And he says a typical, And he dips him down into the water. And that's when it happened. The waters of the Jordan River, when he came up, you'll never believe it. What happened? He says, <laughs> there was a voice. This voice that came from above somewhere. It was like nothing that I had ever heard. While at the same time, it was like everything that I had ever known. It was like there was a substance and a weight behind the voice that it was like coming from the same place of creation that all things were created from. There was a weight behind, like I could feel the weight of my whole family story. What did he say? This is my son, whom I love, with whom I delight. Luke, I think it was God. Not only that, but as the words were heard, it's almost as if they became like a substance, like it came down onto him. Not like lightning striking Jesus, but more like a graceful, uh, beautiful, like dove coming down upon him. And it, it, it became like a permanent part of him. So he knew that after that, he was never the same. He never went back to doing the same things. I tell you what, when he came out of the water and made eye contact with me, I never wanted to look away. I saw the eyes that I've always seen, the eyes of the carpenter or, or with the wrinkly face of like a shepherd. And, but looking at him was like making eye contact with the king. And his countenance weighed upon my heart like a weight of solid gold. But at the same time, I... Like I was going home. And all of our worries in that moment, like if this wasn't real, and all of our wonder if this was actually going to happen, vanished. And I knew in that moment he was the one that we'd all been waiting for. So we came home, and we started to write down the best we could our family genealogy. As a matter of fact, I have it right here. And maybe he gave it to Luke, who then copied it down. I don't know. I wonder if this was part of the conversation that happened here. So Luke places this genealogy right after this story. It's hard for us sometimes to really get into genealogies, and I get that. I don't get into it very often in, like, my own life. I like the Bible stuff, but, I mean, there's an ad on Facebook every once in a while for your ancestry, you know, but I don't click on it. I know my great-grandfather was found on the side of the road, and so that's not going to help. And my other side great-grandfather was in this Native American conspiracy with, you know, it's kind of a dramatic story, and... So, you know, we just don't go there. Uh, I'd like to know if there were any major criminals in my family heritage, just because that would be cool if Jesse James or somebody was a part of our family. But 
I can't look at the ancient genealogies of the scriptures with my mathematical Western eyes, and I can't put on them things that there was never really meant to be put on them, you know? The genealogy is something that was used to prove what land was yours or to prove what family you were really in and not necessarily to prove exactly how it happened. And So let me just share for two seconds about genealogies. I mean, maybe some of you know that there are two genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. One is on the first page of what we call the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1. And it's just the list of people who are in Jesus' family. And here's the second one in Luke chapter 3. And I will be the first to say, they're different. They aren't exactly the same. There have been a lot of people who have debated whether or not they sync up or how that really works or whose names are really what. But nobody really knows. And so I just want to say that nobody really knows why they're different. And I've got ideas, and I believe some things. But let's remember what the Apostle Paul said, not to get into endless quarrels and arguments out of genealogies and whatnot, too. I don't major in the minors, so what do we know? We know that around Jesus' time, there was a king named Herod who stomped around Israel so much that you could even see his footprints there today. And the only thing bigger than King Herod was King Herod's ego. He wasn't a legitimate, technically like legitimate king uh, because you had to be in the line of David to be a king. And so his solution to all that was to just destroy all of the official family trees and genealogies. So we know that that happened and we know that that makes it very difficult for us to figure out some of these genealogies. But also that people were reconstructing their genealogies and doing it from memory or doing it from what they had so that they could hand down something as to the next generation for their legacy's sake. I also assume that Luke didn't put this in here just to disprove Matthew or, or something that he was trying to do. I think maybe it's here to inspire us of the depth of the story that's really going on and here to show that God means what he says when he promises people things. He means what he says when he promises that there will be someone that arises from this family to be the champion. And so I wonder if we could enter into that story a little bit more this morning and I think an easy way to do it is to take that voice that came from the heavens and see those three phrases and wonder if those three phrases can somehow point us to the story of this genealogy. This is my son, whom I love, and whom I delight. We use those three phrases. So what's the first phrase? This is my son. This phrase... Not only does it mean what it says, but it is also a direct quote from a psalm. A very famous psalm. Psalm Psalm chapter, Psalm 2. I'll read it, some of it in a moment here. Psalm 2 has been, it was written at least a thousand years before Jesus was um, around. And it has always been uh, lingering behind it, this messianic prophecy of a king who would come. And be this great king over all the nations. 
This is connected to King David. Why? Because remember the story in 2 Samuel 7 where King David felt bad that he hadn't built like a house for the Lord? What does he say? You know, I've been fighting all these battles and I have this beautiful house, but you have a tent. I can't believe it. And through the prophet Nathan, the Lord says to David, that's so great that you want to build me a house. However, I want to build you a house. And he doesn't mean like a house of wood. He says, I want to build your family in your house. I will put someone on your throne who will rule forever. They will rule the whole earth. So we're waiting for this king, articulated also in Psalm 2, who gets the nickname, the son of David. We're waiting for the son of David. Listen to Psalm 2 and verse 7. I will proclaim what the Lord's decree is. He said to me, here's the line, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. For your way will lead you to destruction and his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the son of David. The king to come who will rule over all of the earth. Who is he? See, these people in the genealogies, it's like we're going to take a flashlight and shine it on them, and, and the, the silhouette behind them is actually a great picture of Jesus. It's like some of these people, God specifically said, you look enough like Jesus that could be when people think of you and all that you stand for would actually be a pretty close replica of who Jesus is going to be, like a foreshadowing almost. So think of who David is. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The tough and tender king. The shepherd king. Who was able to be sensitive and able to dance and rejoice at the presence of the Lord. The man who is after God's own heart. This is David. The same man who even from an early age was willing to fight for his family. Who stood before the giant and said, cross this line. If you want my family, you're going to have to come through me. The warrior, David, who fought off all of the nations that were around Israel and actually made peace for a time there. Imagine that. The son of David will be like David. For David was a rescuer. He would rescue people who were in trouble. I wonder if anyone recognized Jesus as the son of David. And as you read through the Gospels, you'll start to see that there are some people who recognize Jesus as the son of David. But they're only people who know that they have some serious need right now to be rescued from. For example... During uh, Passover, there's these people with palm branches who are saying, we need rescued from all these nations around us, and we want freedom, so save us, please. Son of David, as Jesus came in on Palm Sunday. 
of the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed, and she's at her wit's end and says, Son of David, help me, please. Or remember the man from Jericho, Bartimaeus, who's blind, and he's just sitting there, and he hears this commotion coming. Who's coming? I can't see who's coming. It's, I'm blind. <laughs> who's coming? <laughs> this is Jesus of Nazareth, the one who's been healing people. What's he do? He starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, can you see me? I can't see you. I can't see anything. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you hear me? I need you. And then that famous verse in Mark 10 where they say, do not be afraid for the master calls you. He comes to him and Jesus, it's like, looks at the man and he sees that he left his cloak on the ground. He sees that he left his security on the, behind him and that he's just standing here before the Lord saying, I need you to rescue me right now. He says, what would you like? I want to see. <laughs> he says, your faith, your trust, your, your faith in me has healed you this day. He became a follower of Jesus, the son of David, a rescuer of the needy. You know him as that. Maybe, maybe not. What's the next phrase? This is my son in whom I love is the next phrase. This is actually also a direct quote from the Old Testament. Um, Turn your eyes in the genealogy. Please, down to verse 34. This is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Do you know the stories of Abraham? He is considered the father of our faith. He's also considered the father of the Muslim faith too, but he's also, he, he had a huge impact. The father of our faith has an MO where he marches through life saying things like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe that God can fix it. He left his family's home because the Lord called him to leave the home. And he says, I don't know how that's going to work out, but you can help me. He's way past the age of having a child, yet he was promised that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. I can't have kids. Sarah can't have kids, but I think you can fix that. He finally gets a son. He names him Isaac. And everything is good and going according to plan. And Abraham lays back in his tent one night, about to nod off. And guess what voice he hears? The voice that we've been listening to this morning. It says, Abraham. He says, here am I, Lord. (laughs) I want you to take your son. Kind of have two sons. (laughs) Your only son. Here's the line. Whom you love. I want you to take the son whom you love. To the region of Moriah. To the mountain that I will uh, show you. And I want you to offer him there for me as a sacrifice. And so Abraham gets the crew ready and goes. Thinking things like maybe this will work out. I don't know. Maybe he'll raise him from the dead. Maybe he can fix this. I think he can. Isaac's starting to wonder what's going on. We're going for a sacrifice. We don't have anything to sacrifice. And Abraham's like, God's going to figure this out. He'll provide. And sure enough, as Isaac's laying on the altar, God provides a lamb. 
in the story of Abraham, we have a beautiful picture of not only a father willing to offer up a son, but of God providing a way where there absolutely is no way. Jesus, Jesus is the son of Abraham. He enters into this story as that picture too. That is proclaimed as part of his story from that voice from heaven, whom I love. Remember that that's what you stand for, a sacrifice of a father who was willing to give up his son. He had to be from the line of Abraham because the promise that was given to Abraham, just like the promise that was given to David, needed to be fulfilled. And the promise through Abraham was this, that through your offspring, all nations will be blessed. The question is, how do you do that? Which leads me to the last kind of phrase. Whom I delight. In order to bless all the nations, you kind of have to find something in common that all nations have and fix it. And yes, this is also a direct quote from Isaiah 42. But there's also a bigger picture standing behind the delight of God, I think. It reminds me of verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam. The story of Adam is one where Adam and Eve live in this garden. The garden is the Hebrew word Eden, which means delight. The man and woman lived in this place of delight, the delight of God. And they rebelled against God, and so they lost the place of delight. They were taken out of the delight, and nobody's ever been back in the delight, in and of themselves, because something changed after Adam. There was a new, there was a new likeness. You can read in Genesis chapter 5, the generations of Adam, where it says Adam was born in the likeness, or made in the likeness and image of God. But then it goes on to mention, after he was about 130 years old, he had a son named Seth, who was born in the image and the likeness of Adam. That's a very rare phrase for genealogies. It usually just says the son of. I wonder why the subtle shift is really there. I think it's because Adam started a new likeness and a new image. Adam not only is what we believe to be the father of all mankind, but Adam is the father of all the fallen. Through one man's disobedience, many have been made disobedient or sinners. This is what the nations all have in common. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We need someone to fix this. And anybody who's been born of the line of Adam and the line of Eve cannot fix this. But then there was one man who was born of a virgin who said, Call me the son of man, because I want to fix that. And I love that verse in Romans 5.19, that through one man's disobedience, many became sinners. Because what's the next phrase? Through one man's obedience, many can be made righteous. The Apostle Paul comes out and says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47, right? Jesus was the last Adam. And he has become the second man. 
And so anyone who hides behind him and anyone that receives him as the fix to the problem of sin, they become like a part of a new likeness. They become a part of a new uh, image that's being restored and brought back into the delight of God once again. Promise to Adam when God said, I will make for you a covering. Promise to Eve when God says, through your seed, it will be crushed. My son, whom I love and whom I delight. So I wonder this morning if if any of these elements of Jesus are foreign to you. And maybe today's the day where you just reevaluate who he is to you and who he is uh, might be somebody that's welcoming you into a family of newness and reconciliation with the Father in heaven. Say some of us are like blind Bartimaeus who are just living our lives blind and we're trying to figure things out and we think we can see. We sure think we can see with all the pictures on Facebook and Instagram and all the things that we see. But it's amazing how many things we don't see. Some of us are so blind. We think that we know exactly what to do. And all we need to do is is cry out to the son of David to give me sight. Have mercy on me. Give me sight for, for the blindness of my heart is leading me into darkness. You know the son of David, who will rescue you from your blindness, who will rescue you from the darkness, who will meet you as a blind man and say, have faith in me, follow me, and you can be healed. Or maybe some of us have been really trying to work out our faith and figure it out for ourselves, and we've been trying to prove that our way is is an acceptable and better way. And we need to hear the son of Abraham say, I'm the sacrifice. (laughs) I am the one who can fix it. You don't have to work for this. You just get to have faith. This is what we follow Abraham in, where we just say, I trust you, God, to do this. I can't make myself shiny enough for you to see me. I can't do this on my own. I just have to receive your gift, your sacrifice, your provision, and have faith. And maybe it's just as black and white as you living as a son of Adam, orphaned and kicked out and feeling like you're on the outside and that you have no delight on you. You've just been sinning and living under the heritage of sin and under the heritage of people who rebel against God and you can't fix it. It's almost as deep in you as the DNA that you have. You need to say, I need, I need rescue from the destruction of this sonship that I'm under here and I need to be transferred into a different sonship. This can be yours. Remember the verse in John chapter 1 and verse 12 when it says, To all who would believe in him and receive him for who he was, he gave the right to become sons. Are there any orphans in the room who feel like they don't really have a father? They're not really a part of the family of God. They're not really accepted. 
Is anyone hearing voices this morning that say, if I had a kid that looked like you, I would change everything about you? Or feeling like you've got to figure this out on your own and everywhere you go, it's the constant religion and constant work and no rest. The son of David has rescued us from all of the enemies around us and given us a place where we can actually rest and prove our adoption by the way we rest. So if there's any orphans in the room that are operating under that spirit of orphanhood, maybe today's the day where you say, enough's enough. I want to receive I want to receive the blessing of a father. The Holy Spirit's crying out in you right now, Avi. Crying out to the Father. You hear Jesus saying, pray to our Father. He says to Mary, go tell the disciples, my brothers, that I'm going to our Father. And we'll see that in the very end of the book in Revelations 22 and 21 when God comes and makes his dwelling place with man and they will be my sons and I will be their father. This is your destiny. So let me pray with you. And if anybody wants prayer to receive the blessing of a father, there will be some of us here to pray with you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I won't let you settle for a life of orphanhood. This isn't Oliver Twist. Jesus is not Peter Pan. This is a family where you are loved and accepted. And so God, I pray that if anybody in here hasn't received that mantle that Jesus places on them of his righteousness... Then you speak these words over them for the first time in their life. Jesus, you're my son. I am so happy with you. I love you. For as the words, just as real as they were to you, Jesus, they're they're imputed onto us. And I receive those words from me and my own. You're my child whom I love and whom I'm so happy. I delight in you. I have such a big smile over you. Just as you are right now, not for who you will be in the future. Right now, I have delight in you. Jesus, I acknowledge that that's the, the only way to be a Father's delight is because of you. Because you rescued us. So I just want to say thank you. It's life changing. I receive you. I receive you.